you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24, through chapter 45, verse 25. Isaiah 44, verse 24. The words to it are in your bulletin, but also if you want to use the Bible provided in the uh, pew rack, it's on page 769, 769 uh, in that Bible, if you want to go there, however you get there, whether... Your own Bible, the bulletin, the pew rack, Bible on your app or on on an app on your device, however it is, just encourage you to get there. I am going to read our text this morning in its fullness, and then we will pray and we'll get to work. Follow along as I read. Thus says the Lord, your redeemer. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. 
I have stirred up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly, you are a God who hides himself. O God of Israel, the Savior, all of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord. With everlasting salvation, you shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens. He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior, there is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me are righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its eternal, timeless truths on our hearts. Let's pray. God, we get into your word now. And we pray you would illuminate our minds. Cause the eyes of our hearts to see and to trust what you will show us by your word. Cause these words that were penned some 2,600 years ago to reverberate with power in our brief momentary lives as you, our eternal God, work in power over us, your people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. How well do you see? How well do you see? For many of us, eyesight might be a little bit of a challenge. For many of us, sometimes we don't see as clearly as we would like. I remember when I first got glasses uh, a few years ago, I put them on and I, 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 was, I, I, I walked outside and I said, hmm, the trees look a little greener, the sky looks a little bluer. 
But I remember the process of getting glasses. And maybe if you've been to the eye doctor, you remember this same process. They, they have you look at the letter chart uh, that starts with the big E and things get smaller. And they'll put little different lenses over your eyes. And okay, sometimes it looks really clear. Sometimes it looks really blurry. As Christians, we must be a people that see. We must be a people that can understand and grasp reality. And yet, for as clearly as we want to see what lies ahead of us, as clearly as we want to be able to look around and understand our circumstances, there are many times in which we feel as if the glasses that we have been given, the lens through which we are understanding our circumstances, are the ones that make everything blurry. The eye chart that we thought we maybe could understand or we thought we could read at one point, somehow the circumstances and the confusion of life has made it quite blurry. Maybe you're in that boat today. The Christian faith that at one time made great sense to you, at one time seemed to, to give you great hope for all that, you, all that life held before you, now it seems as if God is distant or the future is uncertain. Or you can't make sense of a foggy present. Well, this passage helps us to think about what do we make of God when we cannot see well, when we are confused. What I want to argue for you from our text today is that when God does not make sense, submit before Him and understand He will accomplish His eternal purposes. Let me say this again. When God doesn't make sense, submit before Him and understand that He will accomplish His eternal purposes. Our passage today, we're going to kind of walk our way around this idea and we're going to do it through three points. Three three simple ways that we clear up that eyesight of seeing God and trusting Him. Know, submit, understand. Know, submit, understand. First, knowing. In Isaiah 44, verse 24, through chapter 45, verse 8, we see God telling His people, the people of Judah, who were in captivity in Babylon under a superpower, the Babylonian superpower, and they needed rescue, and God tells them He is going to bring rescue to them. But it's got a familiar refrain here initially, and then it kind of deviates and goes off course. And I want you to follow this here. Look at verse, so you see verse 24 Uh, Where God says, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heaven, who spread out the earth by himself. And then you skip down to verse 26. The Lord who confirms the word of his servant, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. It's like God is reminding his people who he is and of his promises of what he will work in their midst. And so they're hearing this sweet song of God's attributes and His promises for His people. But then you get to verse 28, and we might not catch on it today, but understand that His original audience, the people of Judah, they would read verse 28 and that sweet song of God's promises for them. All of a sudden, there'd be like a scratch on the record and the music would stop. God says in verse 28, He says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, He shall fulfill my purposes. Cyrus was a Gentile or non-Jewish king who would lead the mighty Persian Empire. The idea that God would use a non-Jewish king and empire to rescue his people from another non-Jewish empire that they were enslaved to was crazy to his people. 
It is as if God is telling his people, you are a little mouse, and though you are being held in the grasp of a cat that is going to chew you up, don't worry, I'm going to send a bigger cat to rescue you. That'd be preposterous. And yet this is what God is telling his people. It's no accident that God, before telling them of his promise to send Cyrus to rescue them, he, in verses 24 to 27, he first recounts his attributes, his promises to his people. And so what we see as we start to understand this, as we start to get our bearings, is we must recognize that if we're going to trust God in the confusion of the moment, when we can't see very clearly, we must understand and trust that he is in control of the moment. If we're going to trust God in the confusion of the moment, we must trust that he is in control in the moment. But we have a problem. Or at least I have a problem. I assume none of you are like me. Where that is, that when you are walking through a confusing, disorienting season of life, or, or particular situation even, you might feel as if the moment is telling you more about God than you realize. This moment of great confusion or this moment of great pain is, is very difficult for me, is very trying for me. So does this tell me all of a sudden that God is not as good as I thought? Or that God is not as powerful as I believed. Well, the truth of the matter is, is that the confusing moments that we walk through in life can either, they will either tell us lies about God or we will, or, or we will allow God to tell us what he's doing in those moments. Will we listen to God or will we listen to the moments? This is the problem that Judah is facing or, or, the, or the situation that they are facing. And it's a problem that we face as we make way through news each week. We read headlines. We hear that we, we re- remember the bad news, the bad, hard conversations that we had week by week by week. And we have to make sense of those and make sense of those in light of a God that we say is all powerful, in light of a God that we say is totally good. But look at verses 45 or chapter 45, verses 1 and 2 and following. As we seek to know the God who is in control of the moment. God says in verse 1, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. Now skip down, God making these promises of what he's going to do for and through Cyrus. But now why does he do this? Well, we get down to verse 4. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. And then look over at verse 6. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Do you see what God is doing here as he's explaining to his people what he is doing through Cyrus and he's helping us to understand his character, his nature, his work over the span and over the course of history. God says to Judah, you are enslaved to Babylon, but I'm going to bring this one whom you don't expect to rescue you and he is going to rescue you. He's going, I'm going to equip him. I'm going to empower him to free you from your slavery. And so God is then tracing this outline of his promises uh, uh, worked on and behalf towards his covenant people. And as he sees and as he traces this outline, we read it and we start to understand and see the grasp of the God who is in control of this moment and the God who rules over his people and whom we can trust 
in our confusing moments. And so what we have the responsibility to do is we must do everything we can to know this God. Because our, our, we are going to face circumstances where our, our eyes get very darkened, where our ears get very deafened, and we must be able to still hear, to still understand, to still grasp the God who rules over us. And so I, I want us to note something here in verse 26 and 28. God talks about how he's going to rebuild Jerusalem and the cities of Judah. And he says he's going to, um, of the temple, he'll, he'll build, he'll, he'll lay a new foundation for it. As Christians, we don't build new temples today. We, we don't build temples as, as, as in like the Old Testament temple where the presence of God dwelt amongst his people. And so what do we make of this? How do we bring these promises today? And, how, and what do we know in order for the sake and the health of our faith? Well, we don't have a city that we are hoping to build like Jerusalem to the glory of God. In fact, the New Testament tells us that we as Christians, as a church, we are the temple of God. However many of us are in this room are that many temples of God. And there's a corporate dynamic to it in the life of the church body together as well. And so the place where the Spirit dwells is within His people. And so the church is where the glory of God dwells. And so God's work in His people, what He would have us to see in this, is that His promises towards His people, we must know that they are irrevocable. And that though He may work in strange, unorthodox ways, the question before us is not to tell Him how He should work, but the question before us is to know the God who is working, even when we don't understand what he is doing. And so as you walk the tightrope of life with disaster and calamity, always grasping at your ankles, think of it like this. I, I watched a few years ago um, uh, uh, a, a tightrope walker that was walking on this tightrope that stretched across um, uh, Niagara Falls. And I actually realized, they don't show it to you on TV, but there's like a big net underneath Kind of cheap, I think. Kind of a lie. Uh, you know, if you're going to boast of doing this, you're going to get your own primetime special, pull out the net. Do it real. But that's another story. Um, but he's walking across the tightrope with Niagara Falls crashing beneath him. And, of course, he's got the, you know, the big balancing pole that they hold, uh, that they walk. And I guess it helps them balance. Creative name, balancing pole. I Googled it. That's what it's called, the balancing pole. Um, so as you walk across the tightrope of life, and whatever it is might try to grab your ankles and pull you off, pull you one way or another. What Isaiah is showing us as the people of God is that verse 24, 25, the Lord, our Redeemer, who formed you in the womb, who made all things, who stretched out the heavens, who, who spread out uh, the earth by himself. The Lord who numbered the stars in the sky, the Lord who is a sovereign over supernovas and comets that dart through the universe and the Lord who works in ways that I don't really understand what you're doing right now God verse 7 he says I am the Lord who does all these things do you see the point here is not hey I'm going to raise up Cyrus the point here at before and after the references to Cyrus is are you going to know that I am your God 
This is how brothers and sisters facing death for the faith continue to sing of God's great glory and goodness. It's how in the roller coaster of mysterious providence that we experience, we hope and pray and we give our amen to verse 8, where God says, shower, O heavens, from above and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. So think of it like this. Our first point on knowing or know our God. That's focused on our minds. And so if we're going to do these things, if we're going to exercise our minds in the faith that we might not forget the character and the attributes of our God. Now we have to do some cardio. We must exercise our hearts. Look at the next step. We know and now we see how we must submit before him. Verses 9 through 13 of Isaiah 45. In fact, listen as I read verse 9. In verse 9 and 10. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? A woe is a warning of judgment. It's like this deadly serious caution that would be voiced to someone who is living in great danger. And so God pronounces two woes to his people here. One is illustrated with with the question of whether or not clay that is being molded by a potter on a pottery wheel can tell the potter, hey, what are you doing? And the other is if a child or if somebody can uh, uh, pronounce this judgment over this parent-child relationship. So let's sit with this a moment. These are firm, straightforward, honest, yet perhaps startling words. God has told His people what He's going to do, how He's going to do it, and why He's going to do it. And now He tells them how they are to respond. But may I say something out loud that perhaps some of us might be uncomfortable asking? We read this and we might get a hint of as if God is saying, don't ask me any questions. I'm the boss. Deal with it. You might feel as if, what side of God am I seeing here? Is this God who got up on the wrong side of bed today? But as we try to get a handle on God's heart, I think it's important that we try to get a handle on our hearts. I wrestled over this text this week in preparation. And I was struck by something here that we so often try to evaluate the heart of God, try to measure the heart of God, try to, try to determine the heart of God and, 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 and whether or not He is being good to us in His instructions, whether or not He is being acceptable in His demands. Or would we, if we are honest at times with the things that God lays out before us in His Word, would we at times say, okay, God, you're reaching a little too far here. But I realize that it is an inherent contradiction 
for us to do what so often we do in our human nature. Where in one sense we hold God, God responsible when we don't like what He's doing. How often do we charge God with wrongdoing? Maybe even those words never come out of our lips, or maybe they do, but they come out of our hearts. Or we charge God with injustice, with wrong, with not having as, 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 as good of a grasp on the situation as we do. So He should have done it my way and not His own. How often do we charge Him with wrongdoing, thus implying that He has total responsibility and power over a situation? But when He reminds us of His authority over us, we subtly or maybe not so subtly think to ourselves, I don't know that He has the right to do that. We say in one sense, God, you're powerful. In another sense, God, I don't want you to be so powerful. As if we are thinking of this, or may I illustrate this, in one sense we are like small children, expecting that our Heavenly Father should be on call to meet all of our needs. But in another sense, we are like teenagers. We, in fact, talk back to Him and tell Him that He doesn't have authority over us. He is not our boss. And there are deep questions here. Deep questions that I think we're going to see worked out over the rest of our passage this morning. But I want to just submit before you that when you wonder what God is doing, when you're confused in the moment, when the lenses at the, uh, at, at the eye doctor are blurring your vision and you don't quite know what to make of God and His promises that He says He's revealed in His Word, but you're not experiencing them in your own heart or your own life. When you wonder what He's doing, I encourage you, Don't just wonder about what's happening in his heart. But carefully examine what's happening in your own heart as well. Where am I having a hard time trusting God? What am I having a hard time giving over to God? Why am I having a hard time submitting before God? How does his word speak to this situation I'm dealing with? How does the gospel inform my understanding of this present reality? Oh, that blessed, sweet, precious gospel. Here's what the gospel does. It takes the outlines of God's faithfulness that are contained in Scripture. And what the gospel does is it adds color, it adds texture, it adds shape, it adds focus to make the image of God's character and His attributes jump off the page and into our hearts. And so we see the arcing, we see the tracing, we see the outlining of the love of God towards His people. Of the grace of God lavished upon His people. But yet, in in the Gospel, in in Christ, we don't just realize that He loves us because He tells us. We see that He loves us in Him giving His life for us. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, submitted Himself entirely to the will of God the Father. And where our sinful hearts that might be tempted to and might outright blow through the stop sign and charge God with wrongdoing and tell Him, you stay back, where we may have a hard time submitting before God, the gift of God in Jesus Christ in the Gospel is that He enables us to come to Him through the Son who has perfectly submitted 
to the Father. You might think to yourself, or you might be hearing this and saying, I don't have it within me to trust God like you're showing here. If that's what your diagnosis is, you are exactly right. The gospel tells us we don't have it within us. That Christ not only is our, the, the vehicle by which we receive grace from God, but the Spirit of God is the vehicle by which faith is birthed in us. Faith itself is a gift from God. If you would like to know more about what it means to place this faith in Christ or to grab hold of this faith or to understand what it means to submit one's life to Him, maybe life has felt really confusing to you for a while now. And maybe no matter how much you've tried to make sense of it, you feel as if you still can't. It's like you have, you're trying to complete the puzzle of your life, and yet you have piece after piece that most of it seems to fit together, but you have one remaining piece that will not go in that spot. Or maybe you feel as if life is a puzzle and all the pieces are scattered all over the table. Some of them have been knocked over, and you don't know where to even begin to start putting them together. Whatever it is, I would love to speak with you after our service today talk about this gospel and talk about how the love of God in Jesus Christ brings our lives to life and brings these promises of God's word into focus in a 3D manner where they jump off the page and right into our hearts. Now, as we hear this call to submit, brothers and sisters, church family, those of us who are recipients of God's grace, those of us who have been awakened in new birth, We must understand that these firm words of our Father, they are not relics of the Old Testament. Sometimes we like to think that that the Old Testament was God's dress rehearsal, the trial run. And so he went through the Old Testament and saw, okay, this worked well, this didn't. Okay, let's pause, let's take some time, let's, let's clear things up, let's move over some rough edges, and now we'll debut, we'll, we'll, we'll do, we'll do uh, God 2.0 with the New Testament and with Jesus, and we'll just focus on that end of things. The thing that turns it on its head is that the Apostle Paul actually quoted Isaiah 45.9 in Romans chapter 9 as he wrote of the broken, his own broken heart over fellow Israelites who had rejected Jesus Christ and refused to come to Him. What we see is that one of the great tragedies of Isaiah's day, one of the great tragedies of the days of Paul in the New Testament, one of the great tragedies of those who dealt with and interacted with Jesus Himself, and one of the great tragedies that we deal with right here, right now, in our day and age, is that we try to set the terms of how far we will come to God And how much he can ask of us. But the truth of the gospel and the call of total submission to God. Is not one of making arrangements with God of how much he can have of us. But one of our willingness. To die to ourself. And be made alive in him. So the Apostle Paul wept over his fellow Israelites who rejected Christ. And yet in the mystery of God's sovereign will, this is the means by which we as Gentiles, people outside the covenant of God, have been grafted into His people through a new covenant in Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this and wonder if God's words are far too harsh, 
perhaps before evaluating that, and, be- and as we evaluate this command to submit to Him, perhaps we ought to consider, is His grace so deep that Christ has come with the love of God earmarked for us as ones whom He has brought Himself to. And so as we consider this journey from knowing to submitting, we'll be well served not only to know and to submit, but also to understand what the future holds, even as we are stuck in the heavy fog of a confusing present. Remember what we're arguing from this passage, what I'm trying to present from this passage, when God doesn't make sense, submit before Him and understand He will accomplish His eternal purposes. So we know we submit, now let's understand in verse 14 and following. As Judah battled unbelief and disbelief in God's faithfulness to accomplish His good work on their behalf, God reminded them of His precious promises. His promises that He wrote their name on. Look at verses 14 to 17. Thus says the Lord, The wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God beside Him. Pause right here. What God is saying is you feel like you're that mouse in the grip of one cat, and a bigger cat is going to come snatch you out of its grip. What I'm showing to you is I'm going to release you, I'm going to free you, and the nations are going to come before you and, 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 try, and, and come before you to worship your God and to bow down before you. Isaiah writes in verse 15, Truly you are a God who hides Himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols, they go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. So God says in verse 14 that these non-Christian nations are actually... The the affliction of Judah is going to be the avenue by which non-Christians come to Him. And then verse 17, he says, though we are afflicted, we will not be forsaken. Israel is saved with an everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or confounded to all of eternity. And so as we understand this, we must carefully understand our Bibles. You might be pausing and thinking here, okay, I understand this. He's saying this to Israel, to Judah 2,600 years ago. But what does that mean for me today? There's a lot of promises and a lot of words of the Old Testament that are directed to Israel, to Judah, to people of of, of millennia ago. We say, okay, what do I pull from here? What's for me? What's not? Kind of as if we would go through the pantry and check the expiration date on various food items. What, what, What of the promises of God has expired versus what is still good and healthy for me? Well, I encourage us a good principle for reading our Bibles, for reading your Old Testament, and making sense of the promises of God for His people, are to understand the idea of promises and principles. Okay, So promises of God given to Israel and Judah, we should understand there were promises directed to His people at that time. None of us are enslaved in Babylonian captivity right now. None of us are living in 650 B.C., We are living here now. 
And so in one sense, these promises are made to the people of Judah and the people of Israel. Yet what we see is, as we see the promises of God to his people, we recognize that he has made a covenant with, people, with, 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 with those who come to him in faith through Jesus Christ. And so now we can start to see, okay, these promises aren't directed exactly to me, but the principles of what they illustrate of God's heart to his people are things that I can grab hold of and cling to. So we can say as a spiritual Israel, spiritual people brought into the covenant by God, we are saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation and we will not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. Now look on at verses 18 to 25. They help us to understand further this progression of God's work that stretches across time, across borders, across oceans and to the ends of the earth for all time. Helps us to understand our Bibles and helps us to follow God's hand as he draws the outline to which he is taking all of creation. In verse 18, he gives the invitation for the nations to come to him. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is God who formed the earth, made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord. There is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. He speaks to the nations and, and, and offers them the invitation to come to him. You see this in verses 22 and 23. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. And look at this as well. In verse 23, he summarizes how all of world history will conclude. He summarizes where all the streams of, of events and unfoldings in the world from 2,700 years ago to now to all of time will, will eventually empty in to the ocean of God's rule in Christ Jesus over his creation. Look at this in verse 23. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. And listen to this. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. You know, we get confused, we get nervous when we don't know what's God, what God is doing in our lives. The confusion of our lives or of our world pulls our hearts out into the cold. Telling us God does not know what he is doing. But Isaiah 44 and 45 warms our hearts with truths that we can cling to. Truths that are directly grounded in the heart of who he is. And as we see like in verses 22 and 23. As, as, as the streams of all of world history. The streams of all hearts. Those who worship God and those who deny him. Every tongue and mouth will confess that every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance to God. None will escape His authority and His reign. And understand as the people of Judah hear that. What was the first thing God told them? Well, He told them who He was. He said, alright, remember who I am. I'm about to put something heavy on you. And then what did He say? I'm going to send Cyrus to rescue you. And now look at what He's holding up as the end to which the world is marching. Himself as the one to, to whom... Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Do you have a Cyrus in your life right now that's really, really intimidating, really daunting? It might be a literal person. It might be a real guy named Cyrus, for all I know. Oh, it's an uncommon name, quite unlikely. Or it might be a metaphorical situation that you say, I don't know what is happening right now. 
Well, what God says in the midst of the confusion is He tells you to know who He is, submit before Him, and understand where this is going. This is, of course, a comfort to Christians, a comfort to those who have come to Him in repentance and faith. They've they've reckoned with their sin against God by Christ's death so that they will not be held in judgment for those sins. Christ will be on His throne with all of creation coming before Him. And verses 24 and 25 tell us how this will play out. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength, To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. And the Lord shall all the offspring of Israel. And the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. The offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory in the Lord. Those who rejected him will come and be ashamed. For they were incensed against him. God's glory in the reigning Christ, the nations coming before Him, all of creation, all of world history, all global leaders, all difficult bosses, all troubling spouses, all hard-to-understand children, they will all come before the reigning Christ. And as our God reminds us of who He is, and says, don't forget who I am. Know, submit, and understand. He gives us these truths. Who He is, who we are, and where we are going. That we might put these glasses on. And for the Christian, this is the prescription that you need. When you are fogged up and cannot see in the confusion of this moment. When God doesn't make sense, submit before Him and understand He will accomplish His eternal purposes. Let's pray together. God, we praise You that You don't just tell us to obey and be quiet. but that You have called us to Yourself, birthed within us a faith and an ability to trust in You that is grounded not in our resolve, but is grounded in Your supernatural faithfulness. We who were outside the covenant of Your love have been brought in, have been grafted in by Your divine wisdom. We live in You We live by the power of the Gospel with our hearts grounded in Christ on His cross. And we hope in You by the power of the Gospel with hearts resolute in Christ who is no longer on the cross, but Christ who sits enthroned, ruling over His creation, and to whom we will one day Rejoice in His presence. So Lord, sustain us, sustain my brothers and sisters with this hope in this moment. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.